invite you to turn your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel 31. 1 Samuel 31, it's on page 236 in the Pew Bible. The title of today's sermon is, The Fall of King Saul. In contrast to a song you just heard about celebrating living water, 1 Samuel 31 is a chapter saturated with death and disgrace. I'm sure that nobody showed up at church this morning hoping to hear a depressing sermon. And I can assure you that in the end, it won't be that or it shouldn't be that. But I will say up front that it is a sobering one. Much of it is a sad one. I found myself uh, somewhat misty-eyed as I studied this chapter throughout this week. But I'm reminded from the book of Ecclesiastes that sorrow is better than laughter. For sadness has a refining influence on us. A wise person thinks a lot about death, while a fool thinks only about having a good time. There's something about sadness that causes us to think about the things that really matter. Life, death, eternity. How we're occupying the time and the opportunities that God has given us. And since everything in Scripture is written for our instruction and ultimately for our encouragement, I hope that we all will leave a little bit wiser than we were when we walked in this morning. 1 Samuel 31 is not a long chapter, it's just 13 verses. So I'll read the narrative in its entirety, asking you to follow along. And then we'll walk through it a second time, bit by bit, to see what lessons the Lord has for us in this text. 1 Samuel 31, beginning in verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword! And thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men, on the same day, together. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth 
and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his three sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fastened seven days. Not exactly a pick-me-up passage, is it? The narrator himself doesn't seem too excited to recount this event. After describing Saul's visit to the medium at Endor in chapter 28, where the spirit of Samuel appears and repeats God's judgment upon Saul and announces that he will die in battle the next day, we would expect the narrator then to go on in the next chapter to describe that battle, the very scene that we read here. But he doesn't do that. Instead, the narrator presses rewind and shifts our focus back to what's up with David. In chapter 29, God rescues David. God gets him out of a jam and uh, through a series of providential orchestrations is able to relieve David, to rescue him, to get him out of going to this battle that we just read about. In chapter 30 then, David rescues his family. As he and his men return to the town of Ziklag where they had been staying, they find their houses burned, their families taken, all their possessions stolen. And yet God gives David the grace and the strength, the courage and the fortitude to chase down the Amalekite bands. David rescues his family and recovers all that they had taken, plus a whole lot more. So after taking two chapters... 42 verses to describe what's been happening to David. The narrator now returns to Goboa and sums up this grim battle in just 13 verses. It's as if he's sharing only the details that are absolutely necessary. He is not eager to recount the horrific details of this battle. The tragic account culminates in a hard truth. The king is dead. Instead of long live the king that had been heard decades earlier, now the king is dead. And what an ignoble death it was. It's so different from how his reign began. And that's the first point. By way of introduction, Saul had a royal beginning. The one we read about in chapters 10 and 11 just moments ago. When Samuel presented Saul to the people, He stood head and shoulders above everybody else. Do you recall Samuel's words that we read? He said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And the people shouted, Long live the king! And as soon as Saul became king, the Ammonites tested his mettle by attacking the city of Jabesh-Gilead. But we read that the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul and he summoned 300 plus thousand soldiers who came out as one man. Under Saul's leadership, the troops traveled all night and launched a surprise attack at dawn and they slaughtered the Ammonites all morning. In fact, the remnant of their army was so badly scattered that the text says that there were not even two men that could be found together. After this overwhelming victory, 
the people of Israel reaffirm Saul's kingship by holding a national coronation ceremony at Gilgal. So yeah, he most certainly had a royal beginning. But soon it's discovered that Saul also had a rebellious bent. Saul's coronation occurs in chapter 11. Samuel's farewell address occurs in chapter 12. And during that address, Samuel explicitly says to the king and to all Israel, If you will fear the Lord and serve him, and obey his voice, and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Saul's coronation, chapter 11. Samuel's farewell address with these words in chapter 12. And in the very next chapter, chapter 13, Saul disobeys the express command of the Lord. In the next chapter, Saul makes a foolish vow that almost gets his son Jonathan killed. In the next chapter, Saul disobeys again. And so we see through this ongoing narrative that Saul's initial act of disobedience was followed by many other acts of disobedience and unwise actions, thereby establishing a pattern of willful rebellion against the Lord. Saul persistently rejected God's authority as Israel's supreme king, which resulted in God's tearing away the kingdom from Saul and giving it to a man after God's own heart. David. And yet even then, instead of accepting the consequences of his sin, from God, the righteous supreme king, what does Saul do? Saul continues to buck against God and his authority by trying to kill David. On the couple of occasions when David even spared Saul's life and lovingly, pleadingly confronted the king, and Saul seemed to repent on those occasions, Soon afterwards, he returned to his same old ways of self-seeking, self-preserving, self-reliance, self-sufficiency. Instead of demonstrating what Scripture calls godly grief that produces repentance leading to salvation, Saul was marked by a worldly grief that produces death. Despite his royal beginning, he had a rebellious bent that led to a ruinous battle resulting in his death. And that's the third point that really is the subject of this chapter. Saul died in a ruinous battle. I'm going to go through chapter 31 a second time to see its significance for us. Because many people today, like Saul, have a rebellious bent. They use the blessings that God has given them to serve themselves rather than the Lord. And they deny God's rightful reign over their lives. Scripture says more than once, there is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way of death. And Saul stands out as a tragic example of this truth. If there's one lesson that we can learn from the life of Saul, it is this. Disobedience leads to destruction, so trust and obey God instead. 
There's one takeaway from this sermon. I hope you'll get that. Disobedience leads to destruction. So trust and obey God instead. As we've already noted, the narrator is in no rush to get back to Gilboa. But once he does return to the battle scene here in chapter 31, the first thing he reports is the overwhelming defeat. In verse 1, let's look at it again. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. They fled and they fell. Here in this picture, you can actually see the slopes of Mount Gilboa descending sharply to the Jezreel Valley below. This picture was taken from an observation point known as Mount Shaul, or the Mount Saul. I want you to imagine on the slopes of those hills, dead bodies of thousands upon thousands of Israelites strewn everywhere. It must have been a heart-wrenching sight, and most likely it was one of the last things that Saul ever saw before he died. He goes on to describe death. The death of Saul and his sons in verses 2 to 6. The sons were named Jonathan, who most of us know well from our reading of Scripture, as well as Abinadab and Malkishua. Their deaths, along with that of Saul, are described in verses 2 to 6. And as I read this narrative, it occurred to me that it seems to indicate that Saul's sons were not only with him when they were overcome by the Philistines, but the narrative gives us the the idea that because the sons were struck down and Saul was wounded by the archers, I picture Saul's sons valiantly uh, presenting a, a, a barricade to fend off the enemy in a last desperate attempt to preserve the life of their father. And as they are struck down, the, the Philistines seem, see Saul getting away further up the slope, but the archers are able to fire at him, and they hit their mark. So Saul most likely beheld not only the dead bodies of Israelites strewn all over the slopes of Mount Gilboa, but in all likelihood the deaths of his own sons as well, as they sought to protect their father. We'll come back to Saul in just a moment. But I think it's appropriate to pay our respects to Jonathan. Good, faithful, courageous Jonathan. He's the first casualty reported. But what can we say about Jonathan's character? He never ascended to the throne, but he sure had the heart of a king, didn't he? Dale Davis, in his commentary, eulogizes Jonathan by saying, quote, He remained a true friend to David and a faithful son of Saul. He surrendered his kingship to David. He sacrificed his life for Saul. In this hopeless fiasco, Jonathan was nowhere else but in the place Yahweh had assigned to him, at the side of his father. Maybe that's not so tragic at all. What is tragic about remaining faithfully in the calling God has assigned us? Was it tragic when Jonathan laid aside a kingdom he could not have to enter a kingdom he could not lose? End quote. And that reminds me of 
The famous quote by the missionary martyr Jim Elliot who said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliot, like Jonathan, saw the emptiness of everything that this world offers. He understood the brevity of life, the futility of chasing after things that will never satisfy and will never last. How foolish it is to try to hold on to these things, even if we're able to lay hold of them. And so Jim Elliot, like Saul's son Jonathan, made the right choice. He chose to serve Christ in his kingdom, the true treasures that will be enjoyed forever. What about you? As you sit in this service listening to God's word this morning, singing the songs, listening to scripture read, hearing prayers offered to our great and awesome God, are you a man or woman after God's own heart? I'm not asking you if you're perfect because nobody is. But do you yearn for God the way a deer yearns for water? Or are you like Saul living for yourself? Are you using the blessings, the resources, the opportunity that God has given you to satisfy the things that you think will make you happy? The end of that road is death. That's the real tragedy. Saul died just like God said he would. After being badly wounded by the archer, Saul tells his armor bearer to draw his sword and to put Saul out of his misery before the enemy comes and makes a game out of killing him. We know what they did to Samson, right? But his armor bearer, like Saul's armor bearer David before him, would not kill the Lord's anointed. And since Saul is determined to die on his own terms, at least as much as possible, he has no alternative but to fall on his own sword. As tragic as Saul's death is, we can be comforted to know that in the midst of tragedy, God's word remains true. I mean, Saul died in fulfillment of what Samuel said that would happen as the Spirit of God pronounced judgment on Saul. But it also means this. Just as we can be absolutely sure that God's pronouncement of judgments are true, we can be just as sure that His promises are true. And that is to say that in the good times and the bad, in the celebrations and in the crises, in the high points and low points and everything in between in our lives, we can always count on God's Word to be true. And I guess that's the silver lining behind this cloud. In fact, David saw things this way. David saw his deliverance and Saul's death as a fulfillment of God's word. We know this because Psalm 18 is introduced as, quote, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. In verse 30 of this psalm, David says, quote, This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. End quote. Saul fell on his sword, but God's word will never fall. 
fact, I think it's interesting. I went back to the beginning of 1 Samuel when God first saw, uh, called Samuel to be his prophet. And we read there in the opening chapters of 1 Samuel that God let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. Remember that? And it says that therefore uh, Samuel, I think it says from all the people from Dan to Beersheba recognized Daniel as, or he was established as a prophet of the Lord because none of his words fell to the ground. It was the words that God gave him. So even as Saul falls on his sword, we are reminded that God's word will not fall, that the pronouncements of his judgment are true, and so are his promises. We can always count on God in the good times and the bad to always keep his word. And if you are a lover of God, that brings great comfort to you as one who belongs to him. You know, ironically, Saul had been introduced as the man who would deliver God's people from the Philistines. And yet what happens? Saul himself dies at the hands of the Philistines. We read about the displacement that occurs in verse 7. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled, and the Philistines came and occupied them. Just everything is just going so bad. Throughout this chapter, the repetition of various words emphasize the devastating defeat and loss that God's people suffered. The word fled appears three times. Fall or fallen, four times. Dead or died, four times. The repeated use of these words and the repetition of other words like pierced, stripped, slain, just kind of sum up what a, what a horrible, uh, heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching account this is. It was a ruinous battle. What a macabre tale is told in this chapter. It was a day of infamy in Israel. And it also included disgrace. Verses 8 to 10. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. Back in 2019, when I was in Israel, my son Matthew and I walked through the ruins of Bethshan. Here's a picture that I took with my iPhone at the time. We climbed to the top of the tell, that's the archaeological mound you see there on the far side. And here's a picture of me there at the top of the mound. You know, I was thinking I smiled for the picture, but it was actually sobering in that time to think about the decapitated bodies of Saul and his sons being fastened to the walls of Bethshan. 1 Chronicles 10.10 says, They put his armor in the temple of their gods and fastened his head in the temple of Dagon, the Philistine god. I found it interesting. I didn't know this at the time that this picture was taken. I, I knew what had happened in general there. But upon studying this chapter, I found it fascinating to read in one of the commentaries uh, some details regarding the archaeological excavations 
at Bethshan. Level 5 consists of remains from the 11th century B.C., so right around this time. There in that level of the archaeological dig, two temples were uncovered. The field director of excavations from 1925 to 1928, quote, has suggested that these are the temples of Dagon and Ashtaroth in which Saul's head and armor were displayed by the Philistines, end quote. So buried beneath the rubble, we are reminded of this account in Scripture. Do you see the tragic irony that occurs in the midst of the disgrace? For just as David had cut off the head of the Philistines' champion, now the Philistines cut off the head of Israel's king. And just as Israel sang to celebrate David's victory, David has slain his ten thousand, Saul his thousands, remember? It was still being sung even to the present day. Now the Philistines send messengers throughout the land to carry the good news, their gospel, if you will, the good news of their victory to the temple of their pagan gods. First Chronicles 10.9 also affirms that the Philistines sent messengers throughout the land to carry the good news to their idols and to the people. When you say carry the good news to their idols, what does that mean? It means essentially they held a praise service. They had a worship service to their pagan gods, praising them, informing them of this wonderful victory that they now enjoyed. I thought, you know, they probably had the Philistine version of revival meetings with perhaps multiple nights of praise and worship celebrating their victory. Israel's defeat was devastating. But as one commentator rightly said, worse than Israel's defeat was Yahweh's disgrace. You know, it sounds right, doesn't it? But do we really believe it? We would say that, yeah, more than anything, God's honor, His name, is of utmost importance. But I wonder if we really believe this. I wonder if we feel the weight of this in our own spiritual battles. Isn't God's reputation to be our first priority? Isn't it supposed to be foremost in our minds? Isn't that what Jesus taught us to pray when he told his disciples, pray like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In other words, God, may, may your name be honored, exalted, praised, adored, worshipped, revered. That's our number one priority. That's the top of our agenda in our hearts, in our homes, in our church. Until the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's our aim as believers. But I wonder how often do we think that God's reputation is at stake in my life, in my home, in my church, in my relationships, in the supposedly little things I do day in and day out. People are watching, and God's reputation is at stake in my life. Scripture refers to believers as ambassadors for Christ. We are representatives of Christ. He is the light of the world, but we are His lights in the world. 
As I thought about Saul's death and the desecration of his body, it occurred to me that King Saul died to avoid disgrace, but King Jesus died to absorb disgrace. Our disgrace. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. The cruel irony of the cross is that the only way Jesus could save others was by not saving himself. By bearing our shame so that we would never have to bear our guilt before God. Yet how did Jesus see all this? As the one who would bear in his own body the sins of the world? We don't have to guess because the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. What was the joy that Jesus saw? Well, if we go back to Isaiah 53 and other passages in both the Old and New Testament, this doesn't include everything, but it seems that the the main joy that Jesus saw was the satisfaction of God's justice. God's honor was upheld. But not just was God's justice satisfied, God's people were saved. Millions upon millions, perhaps billions of people saved by the sacrifice of Christ. Because in the midst of his wrath, God remembers mercy. That God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. The joy that Jesus saw was the satisfaction of God's justice, the salvation of God's people, the celebration that will last for all eternity in the new heaven and new earth where there will be no more sin, no more death, no more sickness, no more crying, no more suffering, no more pain. John Piper says this means that, this says when Jesus despised the shame, that (coughs) this means that Jesus essentially said, listen to me, shame, Do you see that joy in front of me? Compared to that, you are less than nothing. You are not worth comparing to that. I despise you. I won't even look at you. I have a joy set before me. Why would I look at you? You are ugly and despicable, and you are almost finished. Your filthy hands fulfill holy prophecy. Farewell, shame. It is finished. End quote. After Jesus died, most of us know the story, two men who had come to believe in Jesus that he was the promised Messiah, the king, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea did what? They took the body of Jesus, they wrapped him in linen and spices and laid it in a tomb. At significant risk to themselves, they showed their loyalty to Jesus by giving him a proper burial. And that's what the men of Jabesh-Gilead did for Saul. My OCD tendencies with alliterated outlines made this point daring do. You can look it up. It's a real word. 
verses 11 to 13. 11 to 13. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. This heroic deed is the one glimmer of light in this otherwise very dark and dismal chapter. These men had not forgotten how Saul had saved their city at the beginning of his reign. And that's one of the reasons why I had that passage read earlier in our service from 1 Samuel 11. Saul had traveled all night to to rescue Jabesh-Gilead from the Ammonites. And now the men of Jabesh-Gilead traveled all night to rescue the bodies of Saul and his sons from the Philistines. This required tremendous stamina, great courage, and stam, uh, uh, determination on their part because Jabesh-Gilead was 10 miles southeast of Bethshan and on the other side of the Jordan River. So they had to travel through the river and that terrain all night. They brought the bodies to Jabesh and burned them there. As you probably know, Jews did not typically burn the bodies of the deceased, but the men of Jabesh-Gilead made an exception. Some say it was to prevent the spread of disease. Others say, and I'm more likely to believe, that they did it to cover the disgrace that had been foisted upon the bodies of Saul and his sons. and probably also to keep the Philistines from taking the bodies back and continuing to abuse them and showcase them. One commentator writes, and I fully agree, that this was a debt of gratitude. Love offers the kindness it can. It doesn't forget the king even in his death. And I thought if they showed such love and gratitude for Saul, who was a failure in so many regards, how much more should we show our love for Jesus, the great King, the Holy Son of God, who is our righteous, risen, and reigning King, who will never fail us. One hymn writer put it this way, Drops of grief can never repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. It's all that I can do. Let's pray. Lord, as we conclude our study of this chapter in the book of 1 Samuel, I pray, Lord God, that even though it ends on mostly um, a downward note, help us to remember And rejoice over the fact that this is not the rest of the story. And even as before this sermon, we sang a song that celebrated living water. Our prayer now, King Jesus, is that you would fill with your spirit hearts that full surrender know that the streams of living water from our inner self may flow. Hear our prayer and answer us, O God, for the flourishing of your people, 
and for the lifting up of Jesus' name. Amen.